You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Last week, we looked at Ezekiel dramatizing how God's judgments were going to happen upon the people of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and upon the temple that is in Jerusalem. And the big theme behind Ezekiel chapters 4 to 7 was, why is God doing all this stuff to us? And the answer came back from God, because you're a bunch of idolaters. Pretty harsh words, it seems. Well, in chapters 8 to 11, which we're going to look at today, uh, that's a lot of ground to cover, by the way, so we're going to miss a little bit of it as, as we read through. We're going to discover the consequences of this idolatry. You mean the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the death of many Jews isn't enough? No, it gets worse. So let's follow along. Ezekiel chapter 8, I'm going to read verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. Now if you have a thing for dates and history, uh, this would be a a place where you would want to take note that this is 14 months after uh, the initial throne chariot vision that Ezekiel got in chapter 1. According to verse 1, the elders of Judah are with him in his house when he has this next vision from God. And if you read chapter 1, there are a lot of similarities with the vision that Ezekiel had there in chapter 1 as well as here in verse 1 and following except for the fact that in chapter 8 here, we don't see the wheels and the cherubim and the fiery throne here in this chapter. But we'll get to that. It'll come. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 2 and following. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head, The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. In visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court of the temple, and where the idol uh, which provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as I saw in a vision I had seen in the plain. In other words, that I saw earlier. As we talked in chapter 1, there is this anthropomorphic language running through Ezekiel uh, again and again about the God of Israel in the form of a man. In Ezekiel 1, this figure is referred to as the glory of God. Later in chapter 10, which we'll get to today, this figure is also called the glory of God and God Almighty and also the God of Israel. And here in chapter 8, verse 3, it's now the Spirit who stretches out his hand and lifts Ezekiel up by the hair. And so, we have at least two of three personages traveling with or transporting Ezekiel by way of a vision to Jerusalem. It's clear that each of these is Yahweh, or the Lord, but sometimes you don't know which Yahweh is speaking or acting. Remember, this is a visionary experience. And it's pretty hard to describe things that you get in a vision, at least to find a frame of reference for it from your own personal experience. As the Jewish Shema declares, that's the kind of like if you'd imagine it being the Jewish statement of faith, 
It says that there is only one God. There is only one Yahweh. But as we see here, in, and in many other scriptures, encounters that, that Abraham had and, and such, ancient Judaism believed in a plurality within that Godhead of Yahweh. For Ezekiel and the Israelites reading this vision, they would have been very open to this unifying, unified plurality within the Godhead because they'd seen it before in other Bible stories. In other words, within these visions of Ezekiel, we, now looking back as the church, see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Lucky for us, we do have the benefit of Jesus and the New Testament defining for us this unity in Trinity and what that means. So for us, this side of Jesus and Pentecost, wow, as most biblical scholars would confirm, this is one of the many formational Old Testament texts for the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. But this is already within the theology of ancient Judaism. So this proves that the Trinity is not an early church invention, as some would tell you on things like the History Channel, which is not a really good source of history. But where the Spirit takes Ezekiel in this vision is astounding. And it begins to uh, elaborate and develop our, our understanding of God. See, he's dragged to very specific locations within the temple. First within view of the altar of sacrifice. In front, and in front of Ezekiel stands this figure, this glory of the God of Israel. As in chapter 8 verse 4. I can't tell you whether it is the glory of the God of Israel or the spirit that is speaking to Ezekiel at this time, but let's listen to him speak. Verse 5, then he said to me, son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. Important point for you to underline or highlight. But, this will see, but you will see things that are even more detestable. Now commentators have struggled to try to speculate on what this idol of jealousy actually is. And none of them really are all that confident in. Some try to speculate. But clearly it's a unique, uh, it's a unique idol that's here in this prominent place within the temple. And there are idols in prominent places of all the parts of the temple. An idol, if you know, is a carved image of a deity that Israel began to worship either along with Yahweh or instead of Yahweh. Idolic uh, statues provide physical bodies for pagan deities. That was the mindset in the ancient Near East. And in order for a statue to function in the way that it was supposed to function, it had to undergo a ritual. It had to undergo an opening of the mouth ritual, which allowed the deity to enter the statue and make it alive. So idols and gods were inseparable in this way. Israel was not supposed to make idols. Why? Because Yahweh had already had local representatives to the world. Humanity was created in the image of God, and Israel was specially chosen out of all the other nations to embody that representative status. So we'll get into that a little bit more later. Now, a few commentators suggest that because the Hebrew words for idol of jealousy show up in two other places in Scripture, uh, that this was perhaps a carved image of the goddess, uh, uh, of a Canaanite goddess, Asherah. 
as referenced in those passages. Now, maybe you've heard of Asherah poles. Exodus and Deuteronomy and Kings and Chronicles talk about these poles existing even in the lands of, of Israel. In Canaanite religion, El, E-L, was the father or the highest of all deities, and Asherah was his sexual partner. And together they gave birth to 70 lesser gods. One of them was Baal, another god you might be familiar with from reading your Bible. Understand that if you're an Orthodox Israelite, El is both a generic Hebrew term for deity, but it's also the word that biblical writers use of Yahweh. He is the El, the El, or he is the God of Israel. But Yahweh is also the one true God, and all other Els are inferior competitors to Yahweh's El, Yahweh's God. They are false Els, false gods. But think about it. If you're an Israelite living in these days of exile, and if your priest encouraged it, you might begin to believe that Yahweh was the same as that of the El of, say, the gods of the Canaanites or the Babylonians. If that God was supposed to have some of the same attributes as your Yahweh, then it wouldn't be too far a stretch for you to start believing that Asherah was his wife, the wife of Yahweh. And why wouldn't this kind of worship be acceptable to Yahweh, even in the temple, to erect an Asherah pole? After all, it was Yahweh's wife. And so we have this kind of stuff happening right here in the temple of God. And God calls it detestable. But regardless of, the, of what idol is positioned in this important site within the temple complex, at, at the altar of sacrifice... This is the direct challenge to Yahweh's lordship over all the gods of the nations. And that's what made it detestable. And that's why God himself says these are utterly detestable things. But the people of Israel refused to repent of them and put them away. Then the Spirit takes Ezekiel to a few other locations within the temple. Let's read verses 7 to 18. Chapter 8, verse 7 to 18. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed, on, uh, portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel and Jezanei, son of Saphon, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each of them at the shrine of his own idol. They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing these things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me into the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And I saw women sitting there mourning the God of Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? Do you see these things that are even more detestable? Uh, you will see uh, things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there 
at the house of the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this, son of man? It is a, it is, is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things that they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them putting the branch to the nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in my anger, and I will, look, and I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. These 70 elders of Israel reveal that Ezekiel revealed to Ezekiel that idolatry had infiltrated not only the priesthood but also these it was now state sponsored idolatry and that it was going on in the temple. Ezekiel sees images of unclean animals and idols carved into the walls of the temple. And these elders are burning incense, verse 12, in darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol. They're trying to keep it secret, but Yahweh says, I see everything. You can't hide this from me. And he calls them utterly detestable things. Tammuz is a Sumerian Mesopotamian god of fertility. And this fertility wasn't just sexual in nature, but it was hugely sexual. And he oversaw the reproduction of of cattle and crops as well, not just children. So the women, Ezekiel sees, mourning the god of Tammuz are mourning him because they're assuming that Tammuz has abandoned them because the things aren't being provided for. They're in exile. The, the, the city is, uh, half the city is in exile, and the city is looking in shambles, and things are just not happening. Crops and cattle, nothing that's taking place. And so they're wondering why Tammuz has abandoned them when, in fact, it is actually the Lord himself who's abandoned them. Fertility and children and crops and herds was Yahweh's promise for faithfulness to the covenants that we talked about last week. But they had forsaken the covenants. They had abandoned their covenants with Yahweh and they turned to idols for those promises. So now they're suffering the consequences to trying, and they're, for trying to find their needs met in other gods. What do you do when God seems absent or unhelpful for you these days? Where do you turn? We'll look at that a little bit more. But do you realize that in turning to other things, you're actually turning away from God? I mean, just think of the mechanics of it. Turning away, turning to other things, you are actually turning away from God. Now, I'm sure that none of us have a Tammuz altar at our homes or praying to Tammuz. But are there other things that you run to? Other things that you have elevated to the place of God for the provision in your life. For your family. For your friends. Lastly, we see 25 men bowing down to the sun in the east. In other words, they're bowing down away from the temple. This is sun worship. Sun worship was an idolatry that was practiced in every one of Israel's neighbors uh, from Egypt to Babylon for centuries, in fact, probably millennia already. Israel had sunk, though, to an all-time low. They're now worshiping the created rather than the creator, right in his own temple. These detestable things just continue to be evident in every part of Israel's worship and in her most sacred space, the temple in Jerusalem. Could things get any worse? Well, let's find out. 
chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, with which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who, was, who had a writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the whole city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve, who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Chapter 8 closes with the people of Judah shouting in Ezekiel's ear. So chapter 9 opens with Yahweh shouting even louder in Ezekiel's ear. And it seems that the Lord gave Ezekiel the ability to, to bring near six executioners of judgment. Remember, this is a vision. And a man clothed in linen with a writing kit at his side. This person dressed in linen is probably an angel, some other kind of supernatural being, and whose purpose is to do an accounting, an audit on the people of Israel, and to find out who is not involved in idolatry, and to deal out judgment to those who do practice it. And it's at this point that the, God, uh, that the glory of the God of Israel, the anthropomorphized God with the form of a man, is now being identified again with, as the Lord, the Yahweh, begins to, ent- to exit out of the temple. From between the cherubim, which was on the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, he's now moving out of the temple. And he calls to the man clothed in linen who had this writing kit at his, at his waist to put a mark on the forehead of the righteous. Well, that should kind of remind you of something, doesn't it? It should remind you of the Passover in Egypt. When the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the doorposts of the houses of the Israelites, and anyone in them would then be spared, and the angel of death would what? Pass over their homes. And here, the command is to go throughout Jerusalem and spare only those who had the mark, only those who were not idolaters. And, and, and Yahweh says, begin in my sanctuary. What if God said, begin in the house at Lawson? I know that some look at this and think, oh my goodness, look at all the killing. This is horrible. When I was a kid, I remember arguing with my mom. Anybody ever argue with a parent? Yeah, especially a mom? Not a good thing. I would argue with her about certain rules she made. You know, I'm this upstart young teenager and I thought I knew better than she did. But I'd say, mom, why... Why did you make a rule like this? Why do I have to do this? And thinking she was being unfair, I'd keep pressing her and pressing her for the why, for the reason for her decision. And finally, she just stopped trying to defend her reasons altogether, and she shouted at me, because I'm the mom, that's why. That was her reason. Anybody ever use that one? I did. I thought I never would, but I did. I've done it. God is not being unreasonable here. 
See, parents do this, say that kind of thing, because one, they're either frustrated and they don't really have a good reason for the rule that they've made, or they've made the rule, they've tried to explain it, and they're frustrated that their kid isn't listening and doing it. God is not being unreasonable or unfair. He's being God. He's being God. Friends, what's the basis for all this death and destruction? Verse 4, they didn't grieve or lament over all the detestable things they had done. The Lord laid it out to them. He showed them. He gave them opportunities to repent. And they kept saying, why can't we do it? Why can't we put up an altar here? Why can't we worship the gods of our neighbors? They were being unrepentant idolaters. And so Yahweh assigns a scribe to mark the innocent. And there were some. We call them the remnant, right? The fact is, God knows. God knows who is grieved over their own idolatry and, th- and sin and those who aren't, even today. I think for us, we need to reflect on whether we grieve and lament over our sin. Or are we too uncaring to even see it? Does this even bother us that it bothers God? Are we flippant with sin and idolatry? Or are we like the Israelites who thought, oh, well, you know, we're the chosen people of God. You know, God will look the other way. We're good. Oh, well, we're Christians. We're covered in the blood of the Lamb. We're good. Still going to heaven. Should give us pause, shouldn't it? Remember, this is a vision, but the executioners are real. God was going to use Nebuchadnezzar and his army to do the destroying of Jerusalem and the temple. This is going to happen. Now, Ezekiel 10 and 11 are next, and you may notice the repetition of some of the same stuff as in chapter 1, maybe even at the beginning of chapter 8, but we don't have time to read all that, unfortunately. Unless you want to stay here till 2, would that be okay? You want to do that? You laugh, but... So, I want to encourage you, This next week, read ahead to chapter 16. Read through from 8 to 16 if you can, and that way, next week, you'll be able to have a good handle on where we're going. But chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. I looked, and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapsus lazuli. lazuli. Uh, We talked about that in the first chapter. Above the vault that was over the heads of the cherubim, the Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. If you remember from chapter 1, the living creatures that Ezekiel saw in his first vision had the appearance of burning coals of fire. Verse 13. And this is where the man dressed in linen gets these burning coals of judgment from. And we see here that There's now a cloud also associated with it. And then we have this cloud filling the inner court of the temple. Verse 3. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple where the man went in. And a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple. And the cloud was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. 
The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer courts, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When the Lord commanded the man in linen, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, the man went in and stood beside a wheel. This is clearly a reference to the cloud that's associated with the veil that clouds the glory of the Lord figure because his glory is too awesome to look at. It's also reflecting back on the Exodus and the time of the wilderness wanderings and the cloud in the, t- in the tabernacle. Again, like last chapter, you might ask, okay, so if the presence of God called the glory of the Lord is above the cherubim, which is the throne of God among men, who's the Lord talking to the man clothed in linen? Again, we have this Yahweh that is the glory of the Lord in a cloud And we have a Lord, a Yahweh, in the form of a man, like chapter 8, verse 2, and chapter 10, verse 2 and 6. They seem to be the same, but different from the Yahweh that's veiled in the cloud. And Ezekiel obviously doesn't care about explaining all this to us. It it, it doesn't seem to be all that important to him, because they're all Yahweh. He's just reporting what he sees in this vision. So... If you have a friend, a Jewish friend, for instance, or a Jehovah's Witness friend, or maybe even a Muslim, people who are opposed to the concept of of the Trinity, you might want to take them to this chapter and help them to see how we get this. It isn't just an early church invention. This is already in the Old Testament and part of Jewish theology. If you want to know more about all this kind of stuff, go to YouTube. There's a couple of really good YouTube channels. One is... uh, uh, videos. One's called The Unseen Realm, the documentary film with Dr. Michael Heiser. He's an influential Old Testament scholar who will guide you through the two powers in heaven theology of ancient Judaism. And also you might want to visit the Bible Project. They have a ton of great videos, but look at the video called Intro to Spiritual Beings and then the ones that follow. And there you'll find what the Bible says about things like, and we've talked about these things just throughout different sermons, but it'll all be together in one where they talk about God, the Elohim, the angels and demons and and God's divine counsel. So just a resource for you to tap into maybe next week. So back to our text. The glory of the Lord surrounded by the cloud now moves out a little bit more. Out of the Holy of Holies, then out of the temple. and uh, And there's this cherubim throne chariot in there. Chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped again above the cherubim. Okay, so I'm going to skip a bit of this. We're going to move into chapter 11, but past the judgments and, into this, uh, and onto the city officials who plotted evil, according to Scripture, and gave wicked advice to the people. So Ezekiel chapter 11, turn to verse 9. And we'll, we'll read to verse 13. <clears throat> and this is the Spirit again. Also Yahweh speaks to Ezekiel. I will drive you out of the city and deliver you into the hands of foreigners and flick punishment on you. You will fall by the sword and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of, of Israel. He's talking to Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Remember, we heard that a lot last week. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. In other words, based on what we've just skipped over, you will not be the Lord's chosen people. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and you will will know that I am the Lord. 
For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed, uh, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Alas, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? Remember back in chapter 8 when this vision started, Ezekiel's not physically present in Jerusalem. He's actually sitting in his house with the exiled elders of Judah when he's transported by way of a vision, by the hair, to Jerusalem to, to stand here in the temple. He's transported there spiritually or however a vision works. And he's obviously still able to see in real time what's actually going on in Jerusalem. And it's at this point, while he's prophesying, that he actually sees Pelatiah die. Yahweh judges him right there on the spot, and he drops dead. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, if you remember. So think about this. When Ezekiel's finally released from this vision, and he's able to communicate this to these elders, they would have maybe already heard or would soon hear word that Pelatiah died. It would be a word to them that, Ezekiel's message was true. You need to believe. You need to listen. There's validity here to what Ezekiel is saying because he's seen it. How else could he have known about these things unless somehow he was there? And then in verse 13, Ezekiel gets freaked out. He's worried that Yahweh is going to get so carried away with his judgments that he's going to wipe out everyone, including the remnant that he promised back in chapter 5 that he would preserve. We'll talk about that in a bit. Verse 14, Ezekiel eleven fourteen 14 to 25. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. The people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while, I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vital images and the detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. And I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done declares the sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of God of Israel was above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. The people left in Jerusalem. At first, they're thinking, well, hey, we're the ones left behind in the holy city. We, we must be the protected ones, the ones taken away in exile. They're the ones being taken away in judgment. Yet the ones in Babylon, 
<laughs> they're thinking they're the ones who had been spared by taking them out of the impending destruction. Yahweh says you're both wrong. And here's God's answer to Ezekiel's little freakout over the remnant. He says in verse 17, Therefore, say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and I will bring you from the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you back the land of Israel again. Now, this text is a big topic in prophecy circles. This often gets cited as the prophetic fulfillment of the regathering of Israel in 1948 when Israel becomes a nation again and the Jews start returning back to their homeland. Well, if the text just ended there, then that might be true. But prophecy junkies will usually miss reading what's next. Verse 18. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be uh, careful to keep my, uh, keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. That never happened in 1948. Israel as a nation, though unified politically in 1948, was and still is not unified spiritually in their devotion to, to Yahweh. They are still not his people. But who is that true of? The church. What clarifies this for us prophetically is the reference here to a new heart and a new spirit. We're going to unfold this more later in Ezekiel 36, but this kind of takes the prophetic punch out of 1948. But do you know what historical moment this does point to? Pentecost. Pentecost. Listen to, we'll just, I'll read you just a bit from Ezekiel 36, 26 and 28. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. This future new covenant is picked up also by Jeremiah, the prophet, and it's also picked up by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is verse 3. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not in ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Then he elaborates on it later in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 14. Therefore, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Dead Sea Scrolls reveal that Belial was the leader of the sons of darkness, a demon. Or what does a believer have in common with unbelievers? What agreement is there? Here it is. What is agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Exactly from Ezekiel 11. This is the Apostle Paul using Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 11 and others to tell believing Gentiles that they, along with the Jews who are converted to Jesus, are now the temple of the living God. Together with believing Jews, Gentiles, people who are once excluded from the covenants of Israel, are now included as the people that Yahweh walks with and among. Hallelujah. We're them, right? 
We're part of that group. 1948 was a great moment in Israel, Israelite history. But the regathering was Pentecost, where the infusion of the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer. The blood of Christ is applied to both Jew and Gentile equally, who through believing loyalty get to become together sharers of the new covenant in God. Not a hallelujah there? Like, this is fantastic. This is, this is the basis of our faith, friends. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I give your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So as devastating as God's judgments were on Jerusalem and Judah, what was worse was that the glory of the Lord, the Lord himself, departed from the place where he met with his people. Yes, the Lord still has some good news to share through Ezekiel. And that it would be that he would not leave his people in foreign lands forever. Yet, the Lord will continue to abide with his people. He will, he will bring them back eventually. One day he would gather all true believers together in one house as the church. And give them far more than the land of Israel. In fact, he would broaden the covenants altogether and include those who were once outside the promises, and that's you and me. But before he could do, make that possible, Jew and Gentile would need a new solution to their idolatry and sin problem. And God's solution was first Jesus. Amen? God's solution is first Jesus. But then, by way of Pentecost, which is what Jesus meant by the gift my Father promised, Holy Spirit comes to make a new home in our hearts and our spirits and he makes it possible for us to live and be representatives of God here on earth. That's why we don't need idols, of course, because we are to be his representatives on this earth so that those who call themselves his people can truly respond obediently and joyfully to his commands and covenants all the time. Today, the challenge of, of chapters 8 to 11 is that without the transformational work of the Holy Spirit, like ancient Israel, each of us has the propensity to turn to other things to meet the needs that God has promised to provide based on his new covenant with us. No matter what you turn to, that's called idolatry. Sometimes we turn to other things because we get angry with God, frustrated with him. Sometimes we turn to other things because we feel God is too slow to show up and meet our need. We have family. We, you all know people who once believed but got tired of waiting for God on something and are no longer following him. Sometimes we turn to other things because we want more than what God seems to want to provide. Sometimes we turn to other things because we want what we see our neighbors having and what God doesn't seem to want us to have. And so we turn to other things to be our provider of those things. Friends, we have the Spirit of God now indwelling us forever. And when we stop turning to other things, He can then move upon us so that we can follow His commands. When we submit to Him, He creates within us the impulse for obedience he makes us people, the people of God, representatives of him on this earth to walk with him and among 
other people for him. Just as Israel was supposed to be. But they came, became just like the nations of the world. The church in the West is horribly, horribly unrepentant of the things that they're turning to other than God. You see it all over social media. And as a result, what awaits is only judgment. He says, begin in my temple. Begin in my sanctuary. So that should be evident to how we live and we worship God. It should be evident to all that there are no other substitutes for us except God. So who do you worship today, my friends? Is it only the Lord? Remember, the Lord's solution is to turn to Jesus and be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit every single day so that you can live this new heart life before everyone else in the world, before the people in your life network. Only a new heart can rightly worship the living God. So let me give us a moment to pause, okay? And do some inward introspection. God gave Israel a chance to do it. They, they denied it. They said, forget it. Let's us take that moment. Let's pause, shall we? Lord God, where in my life have I given my devotion, my trust, my dependency, my wants over to that are other than you? Please reveal those things to me, Lord. I do not want to live in idolatry. I do not want anything else to stand between me and you. When you have given me and all my brothers and sisters here access to your throne all the time. What a privilege it is to be called the people of God, Lord. May we take that seriously all the time because I really think, Lord, it was because Israel did not take that seriously. They abused that place and position. They turned to the nations of the world and to their gods and to their pleasures and to their satisfactions instead of turning to you because they forgot what it was meant to be, what they were meant to be as the people of God, separate, chosen, a holy priesthood. So Lord, today fill us afresh with your spirit. Only by living this spirit-filled life, Lord, as Ezekiel says, are we able to walk in your ways. So fill us afresh, Lord, so that we can truly be what you need us to be in this world and so that we can truly walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.